This is Newswire. Welcome to Newswire. This is B. I'm joined by my co-host. Free. What's up? <laughs> what up, everybody? Usually he does the intros, so this is a new. We're trying out new stuff tonight. So welcome to Newswire, airing every uh, Wednesday night on at 7 p.m. on gradio.ca. Uh, you can check us out online, SoundCloud, all that stuff. Download it. You know what up. So tonight we're going to be talking about Syria and Russia. And mostly the Syrian, the background of what, what Syria is about, where, where it's coming from. And maybe that'll give us an indication about where uh, we'll see the future of Syria. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, things going on in Syria lately. There's a civil war. Uh, it's a war that's been expanding beyond its borders to include huge powers in the world, including the United States, Russia, China, and a bunch of other major powers. So we're going to try to uh, talk about that a little bit, where it comes from, its background, and what's going on there beyond what you hear uh, and see in the news every day. All right. So where do we start? Uh, it's one of the oldest, as we were saying uh, right before we started this, it's one of the oldest inhabited regions in the world with archaeological finds dating uh, to the first human habitation at 700,000 years ago. Uh, and those at the time were Neanderthals. So we've got even like pre-Homo sapien um, dwellings there. The Dedera Cave, or Dedera, uh, cave near Aleppo. Uh, has been has placed Neanderthals in the area and then modern humans uh, appearing around 100,000 years ago. So by ceramics and crude tools and stuff like that, we see. Yeah, Syria is located in what is known as the Fertile Crescent. Uh, it is, as B mentioned, one of the oldest inhabited places ever and is in fact really where agricultural and sedentary living came to humanity and was one of the, as they call, you know, with between this and Babylonia is referred to as the cradle of civilization in that this is really the region where people be, uh, stopped the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and moved towards more agriculture and sedentary living. Um, I was actually watching a documentary about the actual dwellings that they used and how they um it was the the mud in the area allowed for them to make dwellings that were able to dry out their grains in uh without which they weren't able to keep their grains for long enough to use them so that was like part of the whole geography of the area that aided the human civilization we're going to jump forward about a hundred thousand years roman empire so we've got a uh, roman empire existing around uh, what it's a few hundred years before Christ and then a few hundred years after Christ. I think it's like 395 uh, the Roman Empire splits. Uh, when that splits the Western Roman Empire really devolves and shatters but the eastern uh, side of the empire is called the Byzantine Empire after the split and uh, they actually stick around for, for hundreds of years after the western one falls. Rome was a traditionally pagan country or nation that then became Christian. Empire. Empire, yeah. Uh, well, Republic and then Empire, but it was uh, it was uh, became Christian under um, Emperor Count Constantine, uh, who moved the religious center to Constantinople or Byzantium. And at the time, the church, the Catholic Church became split between uh, Western Roman Catholicism, which was based in Rome, and then there was the Eastern Greek Orthodox, which was based in. Uh, Byzantium or Constantinople or Istanbul, which, uh, and then at the time, Byzantium was the rich part. That's where all the money was. And the Roman Catholic Church towards the end of the Roman Empire was becoming increasingly poor. And uh, the Eastern C Greek side 
you know, they were the ones that everyone was looking up, up at to because it was in the middle of the trade. You know, it's been in the Dardanelles. It connects to Asia and Europe. And that was the direction that the Catholic Church was moving. When we move forward into the Ottoman Empire, some of the biggest moves that the Ottomans did were was to uh, circumvent the, the Western uh, Roman Catholic Church of Rome uh, and um, move in direct alliance with with the Franks, which was the, the what we now think of the French. Uh, and so the Franks were the first... Um, and, and as the Franks take more power, we also see more power shifting from Rome. The Roman Catholic Church shifts to, to uh, St. Avignon for a while. The, uh, the center of the church is in St. Avignon. So anyways, we've got, uh, we've got the, the split of the Roman uh, Empire. And so this whole area of Syria is underneath this Byzantine Empire. Uh, eventually, the, uh, the Ottomans, as we were looking into earlier, the Ottomans rise. Uh, out of Turkey, uh, and eventually uh, conquer all of that part of the world and take over the Byzantine Empire. Prior to this happening was an area uh, era called the Golden Age of Islam, which began around the 8th century and moved through to the 13th century, which was the rise of Islamic culture and spread uh, throughout North Africa and uh, the Middle East, it eventually even got to Spain. And uh, from that is where the Ottoman Empire, the Ottomans was a very powerful family that was based in Turkey, that then came to conquer the whole land and unite it into one Islamic caliphate, which was known as the Ottoman Empire. And uh, to this day is, you know, what things like ISIS are trying to emulate, which is uh, Islamic caliphate, uh, yeah. caliphate state. or state. Yeah. yeah. So whereas Europe was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire, uh, it was at the time just very much a similar thing, except it was a different religion. Mm -hmm. It was it was uh, the Islamic Empire that would then run all the way through to World War One. Yeah. Uh, it spanned three continents. So I didn't know that before, but I guess uh, this makes sense, Africa, Middle East, and Europe. And so, yeah, that, that runs right up until World War I. Uh, the Ottoman Empire is slowly degrading. Um, I think they reached their, their I'm going to say their max around mm, 1700s, because after that they start, they start decreasing in size. Um, people start leaving the, the empire. They're unable to keep um, peop, uh, certain you know, nationalities and ethnicities within the empire. That leads up to World War I. They see themselves. They can. Oh, they can recapture all these these empire. You know these far flung pieces of land that they had had. Specifically, the Balkans in southeastern Europe. Specifically, the Balkans, which um, were at one, one point underneath Ottoman rule. Yeah, also northern Africa, and so they're they're interested in all these areas, and so they side with the Central Powers, and which is Germany and Italy. Italy changes sides, uh, and Austria Hungary. And uh, yeah, so eventually they, they, they side with the losers of World War One, And after World War One, the Ottoman Empire is carved up by the French and the British. Yeah. Kind of two points to make on here. Uh, on the first hand, one of the prime reasons that World War One started is because this is going to tie a lot together. Holy crap. <laughs> We're going to get into a lot of pieces here. But um, what happened is England controlled the the oil trade through um, the Anglo-Persian oil company in Iran through its navy. And Germany had an agreement with the Ottoman Empire to build a railway from Berlin to uh, to, ba Baghdad. to Baghdad. Yeah. Berlin, to, Baghdad. So that they can... So whereas England was controlling the seas with its navy, it could get oil to Germany through land. And to England, they were competing over this Middle East oil support or oil supply, which was very important to both them individually, but to stop the other one from getting because it's a source of energy. And that was one of the reasons that World War One ended up breaking out is access to, to Persian oil or to Middle Eastern oil, which is something we're going to get to a little bit later on as well. Secondly, 
is when uh, after World War One and so the Ottoman Empire got carved up by Europe at the Treaty of Versailles, one of the agreements signed was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which is what divided Syria and Iraq into two separate countries. The Lawrence of Arabia is, of course, about um, T.E. Lawrence, who was fighting on the side of the British uh, and was a representative of the of people within Arabia and the Ottoman Empire saying that they wanted one country known as Arabia, which was going to take, you know, the central parts of um, the Ottoman Empire and make it into a more firmly established country after World War One. And they were promised that they would get that. But then uh, the people that had made those agreements backed out of it. They carved it up, dividing Iraq or Arabia into Iraq and Syria under the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And that is one of the main points that ISIS is fighting about, saying that their main goal is to reverse the Sykes-Picot Agreement, well, it's, which was signed in, after World War One. So Sykes-Picot, you know, it's a, it's a result of, you know, the, the Arab troops were the reason, like when we look at, uh, let's say, like Lawrence of Arabia, um, he was he was just working for those of you who don't know he was a, a famous kind of like revolutionary that worked with the Arabs causing them wanting them to spring and, and rise up against the Ottomans during World War One. Germans too remember even in the movie what was their main target it was railway lines because that was the German oil supply definitely and so uh, it, the guy's name is Emir Faisal um, he's the the leader of the Arab uh, kind of the Arab Spring of, of World War One and so he he's actually invited to Versailles. But he is unable to, as you said, the Sykes-Picot agreements drawn up instead of giving Arab uh, self-determination. So Syria is separated into three autonomous regions. Uh, it's under the control of the French. Uh, and there are separate areas for the Alawis, the Druze in the south, and Lebanon is separated off entirely. Even though there's, you know, differing ethnicities, they basically just carve up these huge lines uh, in the desert. They have no clue what they're carving up. Yeah, well, the, one of the things was to separate similar groups of peoples to keep them weak. And that's why ISIS wants to do that. And they have a video that I watch. I don't know why I'm watching ISIS videos. What the fuck? <laughs> and they have a video where there's this border that separates Iraq and uh, and Lip, uh, Iraq and Syria. And they bulldoze it. And they're all sort of cheering because that was one of their main war aims mm. was to end that border. Because it separates similar people into two groups. Yep. So anyways, uh, we'll flash forward to 1925-26. The first uprising happens against French rule. Uh, the French forces bombard Damascus. So Damascus is like the uh, the big city that's right on the coast. It's just north of Israel, if you can think of it that way. In 1941, so we're going to flash forward again, there's uh, quite a bit of kind of turmoil happening up until World War II. But in 1941, uh, British and free French troops occupy Syria. De Gaulle promises to end the French mandate, as the British did for the uh, the Jews in, in Palestine at the end of World War I, right? To, to quell this popular uprising that's happening and get them on your side, you promise them liberation at the end of the war. So they do that. And in 1943, uh, a nationalist named Kuwaitili is uh, elected the first president of Syria. Uh, and he leads the country to full independence three years later, much like uh, India is a pretty much similar similar th kind of thing happens. In 1947, uh, the Ba'ath Party is founded. So it's a guy named Aflaq and uh, Salah al-Din. Uh, Salah al-Din al-Betar is obviously, I don't know if you guys know, but he's the more famous of those. 49 to 54, uh, there's repeated coups at coup attempts. And then finally, in 1963, Ba'athist army officers seize power, and Hafez al-Hassad becomes defense minister. So that's the first introduction of the Assad uh, family into 
power. Now, in 1967 of June, we've talked about the Israeli conflict uh, in the past. Israeli forces seize the Golan Heights from Syria and destroy much of Syria's air force in the Six-Day War with Egypt. Jordan and Syria. They, I think they destroy the air forces of all three of those countries. So I think this is your side note in there. Uh, there's lots of oil oil in the Golan Heights. I know that there's also headwaters of the Jordan River, which feeds a lot of uh, Israeli crops. So there's lots of interest in this. It'd be the southern part of Syria, but the northern part of Israel. Yeah, I've definitely seen, uh, there some read some reports that there's a lot of oil hidden in the Golan Heights. And that was uh, potentially one of the reasons for war. I mean, beyond just religious, beyond all this stuff. Well, that would definitely fit everything else. For sure. Every conflict, there's going to be oil. Uh, in 1970, Hafez al-Assad overthrows the president uh, and imprisons Salah Jadid. So in 1970 is when the Assad regime really comes into power. And rioting breaks out after the president Assad drops the constitutional requirement that the president must be a Muslim. And it's suppressed by the army. So in 1970, we see secularism in Syria really start to... Uh, not just rise, but now it's it's there. Uh, and for the next 30 years, we're going to see Muslims uh, imprisoned largely in Syria. And I th- I would argue that in 2000, the release of prisoners actually precedes this this civil war. That most of these guys were all in jail for and rotting in jail for 20 years, 30 mm-hmm. years. There's the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1980. And so there's there's uprisings in Aleppo and Hamas and Hamas or Homs and Hamas, but they're put down. And uh, it's not till Bashar al-Assad, the son of Hafez al-Assad, uh, comes into power in 2000 that he releases 600 political prisoners. Well, these 600 political prisoners immediately resume political activity of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so while 20 years earlier they were all forced to leave Syria. Now, suddenly, in the early 2000s, we see um, they're, they're all being let back in. And so I think that's the pretext for this modern civil war is, I mean, they, they've had, they, as we see, they have, a, they have a long lineage in that part of the world of thousand-year regimes. It's not like they have these, you know, democratically elected leaders that are, like, in for a few years. No. Yeah. Like, they're used to, like, thousand-year-old regimes. Yeah. That kind of thing. Man. <laughs> Just as a little bit of a tidbit on the Ottoman Empire I was reading about. And the way that succession for the throne worked is uh, when the king died, his sons were to claim the throne. And uh, whoever got there first and claimed it for themselves or got, is the one who got it. So the most favored son would be living, would be running a city or a region that was nearby the capital. And the unliked ones are way the fuck out there and then when it died they'd all race to the battle and kill each other and their last person standing oh, wow. that is the king that is oh, the wow. next sultan of the empire last guy standing yeah like this is battle royale of like siblings <laughs> and wrestlemania so, and, yeah seriously <laughs> wrestlemania <laughs> hell in the cell Ottomans. <laughs> yeah through through an announcer's table but uh and then but then it would also cause a lot of civil wars because the brothers were obviously powerful dudes and they'd rustle up their armies and promise the throne and Fucking throw down. Okay, so just to bring it a little bit more recently, Assad is the president of, of uh, Syria. And then in 2011, there was a proposed pipeline called an oil pipeline that was to pr- transport oil from Iran through Syria to the Mediterranean. And it was the um, called the Friendship Pipeline. It was the Iran-Iraq-Syria pipeline. And it was going to take oil from Iran to Europe through the Mediterranean and Syria. Problem with the pipeline is that it 
had it got its financing cut because of sanctions by the U.S. and England, uh, the United Nations as well. They all sanctioned Iran, and as Iran constantly is getting sanctions uh, through the UN, and they got sanctioned, and the pipeline, the Swiss company that was financing the pipeline, uh, they canceled it. Now these pipelines, to me, are really the center of this whole civil war in uh, in Syria. Uh, currently, Russia is the number one supplier of natural gas to Europe. There's a whole bunch of pipeline infrastructure that exists across Europe, and most of it leads to Russia, and Russia is the big supplier of natural gas on the continent. Uh, it's their biggest cash crop. It's where uh, Russia makes most of their money and uh, is, you know, very lucrative. So the West and Europe, and they obviously want to get away from Russia as much as they can. They're putting sanctions on them all the time. But it's really hard to distance yourself from someone that you need so desperately, as they as is the case of Europe. Like, they're relying on it. So they've been looking for a, a means to get some natural gas that's not coming from Russia. And they found some, and there's a, a huge natural gas reserve in the Middle East. It's right underneath the Persian Gulf, and it straddles the border of Iran and... Oh, Qatar, yeah. Yeah, it straddles the border of Iran and Qatar. Qatar is obviously kind of a vassal state of Saudi Arabia. So there's this other competing pipeline, and it goes from Qatar through Saudi Arabia, through Syria, to Turkey, and on to the European energy infrastructure. So both of these pipelines come from the exact same source, and both of their destinations are the exact same place, but the people that are per, the, the countries that the people that are benefiting from the pipelines are totally different. In the case of the Persian pipeline that comes from Iran, the first one, that is a benefit to Iran, and I guess Russia does. I don't know why Russia how they're supporting it, but the one that goes through Qatar and Saudi Arabia to Europe cuts out Russia, so. Uh, brings more energy contracts to Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, the thing that they do. And, uh, of course, American oil companies are the ones going to be the, kind of facilitating it. Uh, so there's a huge economic thing going on. There's a conflict going on between these two pipelines because whoever, much like the the situation in World War I, um, whoever gets the pipeline is not only benefiting themselves but really hurting the other guy. Yeah, it's a, it's a what do they call it, a zero-sum game. Yeah. It's not a zero-sum game. No. It's where like, one uh, person, if one person benefits, the other person has to. Yeah, it's screwed. And uh, both of them don't want the other one to have the pipeline. Uh, it also should be known that Syria and Iran are Muslim Shia countries, and Qatar and Saudi Arabia are Muslim Sunni countries. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also with ISIS, too. We were talking about this right before, is the involvement of ISIS in the area, along with their funding, obviously, coming from Saudi Arabia and, and Turkey. It's clear where the divisions are drawn. They're clearly on board with Sunni, you know, ideas about governance and well, that kind of Sunni thing. Sunni is definitely the more fundamentalist branch. And I mean, Saudi Arabia follows the Wahhabist branch of Sunni Islam. I was reading that Shiite um, are also more drawn to... It's against oppression. A lot of the ide ideology of Shia uh, goes against oppression. So, well, um, I mean, just looking at the two biggest countries, Saudi Arabia and Iran, definitely would rather live in Iran. Sorry, Saudi yeah, Arabia. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Like when you, 100%. And, and I guess they have a history. Shia have a have a history of being very. They won't take oppression. That's yeah. that's counter to their ideology. Whereas in Sunni, it's 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 it's, um, it's about <laughs> it's about um, self oppression and being oppressed. Right. Put on your your. Um, black robes and, and black veils Bow because yeah beat yourself kind of like self-degradation kind of stuff yeah. um, whereas with Shia when you look at like Iran like most of the women I don't see with, with veils it's a lot of very beautiful shawls and stuff like that even if it is Islamic it's very I would say progressive. Yeah. Like well, you prior see a lot the, more women being involved in politics. And, and prior kind of to the, the 
Iranian Revolution in 79, the Islamic Revolution. Iran is a historically very modern place. And, I think uh, even today it's... it's uh, I imagine a very modern so place. it is, yeah. Yeah, you see a lot of... Like, I mean, again, uh, Pakistan too. You see yeah. a lot of women involved in politics there. And where it's very... Way more violent. Like, they could experience a lot more violence towards them if they, if they were involved than they still are. Yeah. Now, while I think that the root of this crisis is, once again, oil pipelines and competition... Well, a question I'm trying to figure out is how does Russia fit into this? Because they're obviously supporting Syria because, they, I mean, they have a military base there and they've been their friend for a long time. But I imagine that that Persian pipeline would cut Russia out just as bad as that Qatari one, unless they're the ones financing it, whereas America would be the one financing it on the West. America might not be the one financing it, but... They're the ones benefiting from it. I guess now that Rex Tillerson's in... Oh, yeah, man. That pipeline is big money. Because if you can supply all of Europe with energy, like, bro, and you cut out Russia, like, that's so much. It's huge, yeah. It's huge, huge. So there's, like... And it eliminates the need for shipping, too. So it's actually kind of environmental because ships are super dangerous to be, you know, shipping that much oil. Well, one thing I read, and I thought it was a typo, was that... The plan was to get to the Mediterranean and then ship it underneath the Mediterranean. Yeah, well, they want pipelines the whole way because pipelines are safer than shipping. But man, how do you, like, you know, at first I was, like, saw them going up through Turkey. And I was like, why build a pipeline when you can just tanker it on, on the Mediterranean? It makes It's way cheaper, way, way easier. But Tankers then, are unsafe, that's why. I suppose so. But, you know, if, you, if, if, if the options are build a, a pipeline under the sea or go through Turkey... Seems like going over land would be better in that situation. Depends. You got Erdogan now. He's got his uh, dictatorial regime. Yeah. You want to? Well, that Qatari pipeline, like they're really down with uh, the the Qatari one going up through to Turkey because that's the plan. It's obviously that Iran is cut out, so they're going the Mediterranean because they have to. And this is again results of these UN these UN sanctions that Israel and America are constantly bringing against Iran Mm -hmm. because this is what this is the 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 whole thing because this is. Those sanctions hurt Iran, so they have no choice but to build a pipeline underneath the Mediterranean to get to Europe because nobody will be allowed to work with them and nobody's financing this project because they don't want them to have that pipeline. They want to have that pipeline themselves. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, it always comes down to oil and money. Yeah. Big time, yeah. but then this this little religious war on the on the surface really yeah. Well, nice the religious thing, I think it just goads on everybody and keeps them like involved in it. I, we got to get someone in here because yeah. I really am curious about how you know how much of that is just media talk about Islam, like Sunni Shia. I'm sure that they hate each other, <laughs> but maybe I'm right. Maybe that's I'm not sure true. some people do and some people <laughs> maybe don't. that's not true. I'm sure, it's mostly motivated by economics though. Yeah, as Marx says, and it's you might always, only be hearing the loud voices. Always materialism like, that underlies it, and it might just be the loud voices. Like you hear the hate, but yeah. maybe the silent majority just doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, so yeah, I would suspect that. That would make sense. Trump has lately been stepping up the war effort in Syria. Okay, so yeah, we got the he uh, what he fired five fifty nine. Uh, ballistic missiles at, uh, or sorry, cruise missiles at yeah. the Syrian airbase a few weeks ago. Yeah, and then he dropped the biggest bomb ever. Yeah, mother of all bombs. The biggest bo- non-nuclear bomb ever. I think that's yes. Well, I think that's all pff, Trump e- being like, it was the be- biggest bomb they've ever. It was a super bomb. It was ma- it was a fantastic bomb. Best it was the best bombs. bomb. Nobody best has bombs. Ever, uh, nobody has better ever, bombs than me. Obama. 
didn't have good bombs. Yeah. This one, bombs? mother of all bombs. We wrote it on the bombs. You know it. Well, one thing Just I so you know, not... we dropped it in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan on tunnel systems that we paid for. Well, when it comes no to biggie, uh, the amount of bombs that the United States and the military-industrial complex say they dropped, I have no doubt in my mind that it's actually way, way more than that. Yeah, and I have a funny <laughs> feeling that if they say they dropped ten bombs, they dropped a thousand bombs. Yeah, for sure. So then, after this. These bombings that the U.S. the bombs that the U.S. dropped on Syria again without you know congressional approval, um, then there was claims that Assad has been using chemical attacks on his people, and the U.S. and the media is outraged. Uh, yeah, well, obviously chemical attacks are not cool. Uh, I find this hard to believe. This is bullshit. Like this is so made up. I can't even get over it. Yeah, I don't think we can believe anything no. else that comes from the Trump Like, remember when it was Libya? Oh, he's shooting his own people. We have to take him out. Or remember when it was Saddam Iraq. Hussein? Yeah. Oh, oh, look, gassing the Kurds. There, we had, go. He had these chemical trucks that How he dare he transporting around the country, and then we couldn't find them when we invaded. But look, I got an idea. Let's bring sure them 20 years of war, and then yeah. that'll that'll fix them. Yeah. They'll, they'll love us. Yeah, straight up. We'll let's just give bring them terrorism. Some, bring some mercenaries in there. Yeah, let's just destabilize the entire continent. Yeah. I wonder why there's terrorists. Yeah, and they hate us? Oh. Yeah, this uh, chemical attacks, this is total bullshit. It's the... Like, think about this. The, the, the Syrian army, who is opposing the rebels, who were funded by the United States to topple the, the Persian gov or the Assyrian government, um, they were winning. Like, think about that. Why You're winning the war. Why would you pull out the thing that will make everyone hate you? And will make people bomb you. Yeah, well, that's the idea. That's so dumb. Like, nobody would do that. Like, nobody would do If you were... The only chance you would do that is if you were on the way out and that was your last... You know what? Here's another thing I was reading. It just popped into my mind about the whole Tomahawk missile thing. I was reading that uh, the Russians are apparently... They're supposed to have all of the coast covered with their anti-ballistic missile um like mobile units yeah, so what are you gonna do and so and but they weren't they didn't hit these 30 tomahawks or 59 tomahawks so then they came out and said well actually we haven't just to like save face because they had said previously that they had covered all the air bases with these anti-ballistic missiles um uh you know technology that they're that the Russians are super powerful that they have. And so when these 30 Tom or these 59 Tomahawks get through, then the question is, uh, a, is there anti aircraft missiles or is there anti missile technology working? And so then they came out and said that it is working, but they don't, they have, they're upgraded. They're too upgraded that I guess these are the lowest grade that they had, the mobile units that they had protecting this airbase. And they said that, um, actually we, we didn't have these in operation yet. And but the most powerful are protecting Russian interests. So no, don't worry, it definitely works. Um, but they just weren't they weren't turned on or they weren't in this area. Yeah, at the time. but at the same time, I mean, even though they had promised that the, the so the question is that a they could have just not they don't work and they're not effective just and don't they exist. yeah that the tomahawks can get through this missile defense. B that the Russians had turned them off so that Trump could have his little show of force. Because we know that the aircraft were take aircraft were taken out of that airbase 24 hours before the attacks happened, um, and a lot of like the major things that they said they were going to hit they couldn't hit they didn't hit, and so there was clearly a conversation Trump had with Putin saying, uh, or there was communication made saying 
for the Russians to not be hit because they didn't want to accidentally hit a Russian yeah. jet or That's anything like that. Shit. Yeah, and so there was word given to the Russians beforehand, and then the Russians uh, were known to have leaked that to the Syrians because, again, they had taken all their expensive aircraft out of the area before those cruise missiles hit. Um, but, yeah, so then the question is, is, like, so there's either definitely compliance by the Russians or the Russians anti-aircraft missiles or the air anti-missile system doesn't work at all well what about this what if uh you know russia's been spying on america old forever like that's like the thing uh you know they both spy on each other so imagine that russia knew that the attack was coming uh maybe it's just a matter a choice of it's not time because say those missiles go and then you know the, the media's jerking off to it like they were remember that quote like glenn greenwald said he's mm-hmm. like if uh farid zakaria could have sex with Trump bombing Syria, he would. <laughs> it's like this media guy is just jerking off, banging the war drum big time, loving every second of it. And uh, but imagine if then those missiles of patriotism were flying towards Syria and these Russian anti-missiles blew them all up. Like, that would be such a burn. Especially Trump, he'd be like, uh-uh. Like, he goes so mad about that, right? That's true. So if that happened, then it's like, oh, this is war with Syria. And so maybe Russia was just like, eh. Yeah, well, we're not cool, ready for cool. that yet. Yeah, I wonder what the, what the deal is with him. But there's definitely that shows complicity or compliance with the. the American that could just system. be intelligence. Like I'm yeah, sure, maybe. I'm sure that uh, Trump. I I read that not, they uh, directly co- communicated with them and, and let the military know that they were bombing it. That's what I had read. That there let was, who know? Oh, uh, the Russians. Oh, well, maybe that, that there is was the case, that they had yeah. come out that they came out afterwards and said that they had talked to the Russians to make sure there wasn't Russians. Well, maybe it's there. just a straight up like, hey, our bomb's coming. Just so you know. Just so you know, we want to show off. Yeah. We we're gotta, bringing our, an armada to North Korea we next tr- week. Yeah, we got to <laughs> show a force here. We got to... But that's that's exactly just... Tr- every every president this happens to, you know. Yeah. That they come in, Obama had to go topple... Uh, old Libya. Old Libya to Gaddafi, prove himself, yeah. so... I just hate how, like, America Wait till the midterms. is just, like, so much, like, yeah, we're gonna go kill some people and fuck up their country for a generation and then peace out. Yeah. And you're gonna pay for it. Yeah. And we're going to be fucking you up 20 years in the future. Like yeah. they're doing in Afghanistan still dropping the uh, mother of all bombs on like a country. We like completely lost it. Invading completely lost. People it, who taking. have nothing are going to come and blow us up. Yeah. Thanks. Well, God. I don't think any of the Afghanis actually blew us up. It was Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Well, it's always Saudi Arabia. All right. Well, um, it was a good Siri episode. Yeah, it was a good episode. Um, let me just thinking if there's anything else that needs to be covered on this one. Uh, let's talk. Uh, what we let's talk a little bit about what we think is gonna be happening here. All right, the future. Yeah, I predict um, eventually de- eventual destabilization. Assad will leave. I don't think the West is gonna allow Assad to stay in power. I think judging that, from uh, past histor- historic events in the last twenty years, I don't see them letting a strong man stay in power. The unfortunate part, looking into this as economically as I can with this situation, is it's one that neither side is going to give. Because if Russia, this is their only hope to keep themselves solvent, and uh, America is so desperate for money and is owned by its military. So both of them are going, it could be, it could get worse before it gets better. I think Russia will back up on the Syria. They'll they'll play the Syria card. They'll say, we'll back out of Syria. You can take Assad, and they'll take the rest of Ukraine. And they'll take a Baltic. Yeah. it's. I think we're going to be talking about this for a while. Yeah, I think they're going to trade in their Syria and North Korea cards. They're going to say, okay, we'll help you with Syria and North Korea. We want Eastern Europe again. Yeah. And, and the United States will, will give in. 
I, you think, I think they'll, so. they'll cave? Yeah, I think I think Trump they'll back up on it, it, man. I think that they'll play it, play it as like a big win for both. Who sides. do you think's the better strategist, Trump or Putin? Well, Putin for sure. Who do you think thinks they're better? Putin. I think Trump also thinks he's better. Um, I personally think that, in terms of if we were getting in a world war, Trump would be a good president. You think so? Yeah, I Why think that? I, I think he's blustery. He lies a lot. People are unsure of him. You think he's a and good he, military commander in chief? Let me just let me just read out. Uh, I'm gonna find this quote from Mike Pence. Just uh, hold with me for a couple seconds. Um, basically, the idea is that it, it was part of our. Uh, sorry, let me just pull this up. I'll just uh, comment on something yeah, while please. you're looking that up here. Uh, while there have been many. Uh, confrontations between the leaders of Russia slash the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, one of the, uh, the most heated one was between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And at the time, both of those guys were great. You know, Khrushchev was one of the best secretaries of the Soviet Union. Uh, Kennedy was obviously a hugely popular populist leader that, you know, was good in a lot of ways. Um, but then there's been a lot more. And this one has got to be the funniest Trump and Putin. Putin, Brezhnev and uh, Nixon, yeah, also very not very agreeable guys. Yeah, got together. Yeah, Nixon Gor went to China. Gorbachev and Bush, pretty good. Yeah, Gorbachev and Bush. Uh, so Mike Pence, Putin and Trump. He, I mean, Mike Pence is talking about North Korea in this quote, but like this is this is I think epi uh, the epitome of Trump foreign policy. Mike Pence warns North Korea that quote unquote the era of strategic patience is over. U.S. Vice President said he's hopeful China would use it as extraordinarily... Uh, we won't worry about that part. But here's the quote. Quote, unquote, President Trump has made it clear that the patience of the United States and our allies in the region has run out, and we want to see change. We want to see, insert any country here, abandon its reckless path of the development of nuclear weapons, and also its continual use of testing of ballistic missiles is unacceptable. All options are now on the table. Uh, Pretty there's standard another, rhetoric. There's another part that he said. Um, come on, Mike Pence, give me give me your quote. Oh yeah, an, an overwhelming and effective response, and that that's what I think. What shock Trump is and awe. shock and awe. That's what that's what, like Trump's like like that's what Trump is. He's like he's all about the show. It's not necessarily that he's gonna follow through and like make countries better, but he will definitely drop mother of all bombs on whoever. Like yeah, he's like the first leader us. that said like we'll drop a nuke. You know, like like we've got a bunch of leaders in the world now that that are not scared of using nuclear weapons. The last like 50 years of nuclear de-escalation since 1960s has been kind of shattered. Like every like we've got Putin saying that, yeah, that's not on the that's Putin is like the moderate at the table now. Yeah. You know, in this seems that way, in yeah. the world of in the world of these like extreme personalities Pakistan, like, like Pakistan, North India Korea? are both on the edge. You know, North Korea is, is saying they're going to yeah. do it. Trump says he'll do it back if, you know, he'll, he'll oh, we'll do it to you. if you, And it, whereas we have no moderate, like Putin's the moderate saying, hey, let's let's get peace out of this. Like Putin's the only one not really starting. You know what wars. I think uh, it is, is I think that um, we're living less in the burned in shadow that was the world Second World War. I mean, a lot of leaders up until just recently grew up, you know, either during the Second World War or immediately after it and were really aware of, you know, the the the, the bomb and like the propaganda that was going on all the time, like it'll burn your skin off and shit like that. And now this generation of politicians like Trump we don't never even, dealt with that. Like, we don't even think about what the bomb even means. Yeah, like, like we he, don't have just bomb shelters no, or anything, even like, though we're closer to it than we ever have been before. Yeah, but it's just like 
you know, this grainy black and white image that really means nothing and nobody ever really has any experience with because of the, you know, it's so far out there that most, most people don't come in contact with that ever, even as the president. And like the, you are so disconnected from exactly what you're talking about when you're coming to these like insanely powerful nuclear weapons that you just have no concept of what that means to be used. So it's just like, yeah, we got them. We'll use them. Yeah, whatever. Although I have, I even know what you're saying. I've read that, uh, (laughs) that they do know what they're talking about because I've heard that nowadays what gets dropped is what's called tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah. And they're much smaller. They're, they're made not to make in mushroom cloud, not to show what you would normally see from a nuclear weapon because those things were seen to be like so immoral and like even after World War II they had to have this huge explanation of like okay it was saving American servicemen like that's the rationale of okay it's okay to kill hundreds of thousands of people in one bomb as long as it's saving like millions potentially right. of our own men. But nowadays we don't have that rationale, that huge moral choice. That conflict doesn't so instead, exist. So instead, they create they created much smaller what are called tactical nuclear weapons, uh, which are like you could set them off within a building and it wouldn't even take the building down. Yeah. But it would irradiate the area and kill everybody within that immediate blast radius. Well, I saw even videos of these. Uh, they're testing artillery fired nuclear bombs. So you like. Just a little mini nuke goes off, yep. and this video of these I've soldiers heard, marching in to the follow. I've heard. They, like, I've, heard I, I've read on depending on what you you know whether you believe the site, but I've read that they're using them in Ukraine. Really? Yeah, well, I think that's region. something that is pretty uh, confirmable through science because you just be like get a guy. Geigometer? Yeah, the Geiger counter. Geiger that's, counter. That's yeah. that's where they're getting it from. Again, you have to have like, like it would external be pretty, confirmation. It, it, it would be pretty obvious. Like, oh well, there's just a crazy amount of radiation. It's not well, I mean, uh, I've read that some people believe that they did that at the Trade Trade Center too, because the Trade Center. Well, that, that would definitely show up. It was it was radiate it was radioactive and it uh they said it was from the heat created the the radioactivity. Well, I'm no uh, rocket scientist or scientician, but I imagine somebody would be able to know if that was the deal. Yeah, look it up at the World War. Look at the conspiracy behind World War or oh, the World Trade Center and oh, the uh, and the <laughs> and the tactical nuclear weapon. All right, I will. Anyways, on that note, on that note, we done. Uh, yeah, sweet. Might as well. Well, that was our. I guess our first kind of focused episode. Yeah, Hopefully, thematic. We'll, uh, I think second though we did uh, the Israeli six day war and stuff like that. I remember oh, yeah, that we one. We did point. one Israel. Yeah. I really like these uh, focused topics. Uh, yeah, we'll have fun. to have a, maybe a little bit more organized next time. But that was great. Yeah. Uh, if you have a topic that you want to talk about, you can get at us. Uh, send us an email. Send us a, a tweet. A twat. Cool. Uh, upcoming probably will be airing this uh, right before the show. So April twenty eighth. Yeah, April Friday. 20th. Uh, we got a show at uh, the Forge on White. Great show, Rock Against Racism. It's going to have Arlo Maverick, a bunch of other great local rock and hip-hop acts, uh, all going towards iHuman uh, Youth Society. So great uh, charitable cause in Edmonton. Uh, show starts at 8. Yeah, man. Make sure you come and check it out. It's the old pawn shop. It's on White Ave. we got a lot of great shows for you, a lot of great people that are going to be hanging out. And all your money is going to charity. So, you know, good deed done. And uh, we'll be happy to raise some money for them. Uh, get some tickets. You can get tickets on the radio website at gradio.ca. You can also go to yeglive.ca. Tickets will be available there. 10 bucks. Might be 15 at the door. Probably not, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, make sure you get your tickets early because hopefully we're going to have a sellout show for you. So. Make sure you be there. Cool. Uh, hopefully see you on, is it a Friday or Saturday? Friday, I think. Oh, Friday night. Hope to see you Friday night. Uh, thanks for checking us out, everybody. So from Newswired, I'm free. I'm B. We'll catch you next little pit time, everybody. Peace out. Peace.